Real quick, everyone, this year we are really trying to grow the podcast, and one of the best ways to do that is by rating and reviewing the podcast. Whether you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, help us out by rating and reviewing the podcast, and that'll help us grow and reach new audiences and hopefully continue spreading the important message of prevention. Welcome, everyone, to another brand new episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. And before we get into this one, I'm going to have you guys take a step back, try to listen to last one, and you can understand a lot of the context behind this one. If you don't, this one will still make perfect sense, but it's something that we also don't discuss that much on the podcast, and that is actually end-of-life care. And um, you'll be interested to see how this discussion kind of plays along with preventive medicine, because typically when you think of preventive medicine, health, you're not thinking about the end of life, right? We're thinking about people staying healthy, but there is still a lot of prevention and risk reduction you can practice um, near the end of life. And today's guest will talk about a lot of that and it'll be a phenomenal conversation. I'm looking forward to it. But first, if you are a brand new listener, then don't hesitate to check out our other 40-ish or so episodes. We think we have a lot of high quality content that you would enjoy. If you're coming back, then thank you very much. We appreciate your continued support. We hope this episode lives up to your expectations from everything else we've done, and I think it will, so let's get into it. Overcoming saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths, we must now face a new enemy, ourselves. With the rates of diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, and many others ballooning, we must find a better solution to these modern epidemics. The Preventive Medicine Podcast. We believe in building a foundation of health by means of prevention so that you can build the life you want and find fulfillment with no barriers. Hear from experts around the country on how to take your health into your hands. Take control and build a foundation of health for the life that you want to live. And now, here's your host, Raghav Sharma. Welcome, everyone. Today, we are talking to Dr. Nicole Piamonte, um, who is a a great person. She's actually an author, but and I, I've started reading her books. But before we get into that, she's also the assistant professor and assistant dean at the uh, Creighton University School of Medicine down in uh, Phoenix, where it looks a lot warmer on her video. I wish I was there. It's very cold here in Chicago. Um, she has a PhD in medical humanities from the University of Texas. And like I was saying, she's the author of two books. The first is Afflicted, How Vulnerability Can Heal Medical Education. And the second one, which is entitled Death and Dying, um, not not the nicest name, but a very good book. Um, I got about halfway to three quarter way through it. So sorry, I couldn't finish it, but it's a great book. Um, she's also won numerous awards and honors as well. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So um, you practice a very interesting part of medicine or like an interesting field. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into it and what gets you out of bed in the morning? Sure. So as you mentioned, I am in medical humanities, have a PhD in medical humanities. Not a lot of people know what that is. There is only one place uh, in the world you can get a PhD in medical humanities. I did not know that. Yeah. At the University of Texas on a weird island, Galveston Island. Shout out to Galveston Island at the University of Texas Medical Branch down there. So some of how I got into this really niche field was when I was an undergrad, um, my senior year, my mom got diagnosed with advanced ovarian cancer and I was her caregiver. Um, and then as I went into my master's degree, I wanted to stay home and take care of her. So I ended up doing this master's degree. I wanted to do English literature, but I I did it in, um, interpersonal communication with a focus on health communication. And I was kind of studying the ways that uh, doctors and patients engage, how um, illness affects the family. And the summer between my first and second year, um, my mom died that summer. And she died and she was a nurse, right? She she understood medicine and that capacity. And I wasn't familiar with it. And the day she died one of her oncologists offered her like a fourth line, fifth line chemotherapy, right? And then a palliative care doctor came into the room like four hours later talking about transitioning to comfort care. And I didn't know what was going on and I couldn't make any sense of it. And I couldn't understand why when my mom died six hours later, right? Mm. Why the oncologist had offered more chemotherapy and hadn't talked to us about what was happening. And 
When I went back to my master's program, I was enrolled in a course called Mother-Daughter Communication in Cancer. And I was like, okay, there's no way I could take this course. But <laughs> the professor was so gracious and she encouraged me to take oh my. it. And yeah. That's where I really started looking at why did this happen? Why did this missed opportunity for dialogue happen? And that's where I started learning that it was really in the way that physicians were trained. They weren't really trained to have these end-of-life conversations, to talk about goals of care, to walk into these really vulnerable discussions with family members. And they picked up on the fact that I didn't want my mom to die and I didn't want to talk about it and she didn't want to talk about it. Um, so as I kind of continued that research, a professor, the same professor, uh, Carla Fisher, she's awesome. She's in Florida. She encouraged me to continue on and get my PhD. And... Really, what I was drawn to was story and the fact that like there's truth to glean from the experience of my mom and me, even if it's N equals one and not N equals 400 in some kind of controlled trial. Mm -hmm. And really, that's the medical humanities is believing that there's truth in lived experience. There's truth in narrative and story and that it doesn't have to be this scientific data. And so I went on to get my PhD in medical humanities where we use um, literature, art, religion, history, politics, uh, social sciences to think through medicine. So I was trained to teach medical students and to teach them about existential suffering and conversation um, ethics and, and all of that stuff that falls outside the bounds of traditional medical science. And so what gets me up every day, um, teaching medical students, mentoring them. Uh, I, I've created the medical humanities curriculum with some colleagues in our medical school curriculum. I get to teach them required sessions of medical humanities. And then as the Dean for Student Affairs, I also get to like mentor medical students and help them in this like struggle and journey through medical school. And it is like the most life-giving job I could imagine. I feel like I was born to do this. So um, sure, there's other things I do in my life, but I love my job. That is absolutely, I can feel the passion and the enthusiasm coming from the screen right now. It's like in your smile, it's everywhere. You found your dream job and that's absolutely incredible. I'm happy to be speaking to someone that's so passionate about what they're doing, which is very, very to find. How do we find more of you and why are people that get trained in medical humanities and fulfill your role, not kind of across the entire country? Because I can tell you, we did not have that at my medical school. It's not a very normal thing to have that at a medical school at all. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we get more of you? Why are there not more? That's such a great question. You know, I do feel fortunate to be at Creighton where they do have an emphasis, like our dean of our medical school is very committed to the medical humanities. Part of that is because it's a Jesuit medical school and there is this focus on social justice and reflection and mm-hmm. character formation. Um, you know, medical humanities has been around for a while. The first department of medical humanities was established at Hershey Medical School. And, you know, they've been doing medical humanities since the 70s. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, our accrediting bodies, so if you're at an allopathic medical school, the LCME, requires that uh, medical students have ethics, but there's nothing in there about medical humanities. So Mm -hmm. schools are not required. So if it's happening, it's because someone believes in that kind of effort. So more often we see like communication skills, ethics, um, kind of like law in medicine and legal issues. And we don't see this, this medical humanities. Um, So I think that the bigger problem is that the medical humanities are kind of seen as extraneous what's on step one? What's on step two? That's going to be the meat and potatoes of the medical school curriculum where I see it as like, this is core to being a physician and core to being human. And this is not an add-on. This is not superfluous. This is not some nice thing that we're doing for medical students. Like it's core to being Agreed. a doctor. Um, so we just have to get out there and like preach the good word and try to get well, some more medical humanists. We're, we're going to try to preach that good word on this podcast as well. So if you are somehow involved in administration, any medical school, and you're listening to a podcast, first off, thanks for listening, but also get this in your medical school because just based off reading the book and everything that I'm already like hearing from you, we need a lot more of this. Um, and 
this discussion is definitely so I um, have just come off an ICU block um, for those listening. So that's intensive care. And it was during the uh, a micron surge where we were just there was a lot going on in hospitals, a lot of people dying and all of that. And before this, I had never had the opportunity or never had never was put in a situation where I had to talk about end of life care. Mm-hmm. And the reason it's so important is in medical school and in all of our training, we're taught about how to heal people and how to help them get healthier and not kind of transition them to the other parts of life for, okay, now we have to start thinking about how do you want to die? All of those kinds of things. And how do you want to end your life? We just, that's like kind of like, we don't think about that. It's like not part of our brain, which is unfortunate. And it's definitely a core part because we all, we all are born and we all will die. And that's, until we come out with like a secret serum, which I hope we don't because immortality is kind of weird to me. Um, but we always have to do that. So before I keep rambling on, I'm going to ask you, we're talking about end of life, but there is still some preventive medicine that can be practiced. So in your mind, in your definition, kind of what does preventive medicine mean to you? Yeah, so that's a great question. So preventive medicine to me is upstream care that's not focused on fixing and curing in the same way that most of medicine is practiced. Most of medicine is these downstream interventions where people are already sick. You know, people listening to your podcast already know this, but to me, preventative medicine is the way that all of medicine should be practiced. And part of where I see that kind of connection with the medical humanities is that upstream care, requires you to understand something more about a patient than their disease state or their illness, their physical ailment. It requires an understanding of the context of that patient's life that's either keeping them healthy or making them sick or will make them sick down the line. Mm -hmm. So knowing your patient as a whole person, I think is requisite for practicing preventative medicine. And so preventative medicine almost by definition becomes holistic patient care, understanding these dynamics of your patient that are going to lead to better or worse health down the line. Definitely. Um, And I think that can be practiced throughout the course of one's life, whether it's when you're an infant, obviously we get preventive care in the terms of vaccinations, which can do a lot. Um, We obviously eradicate a lot of diseases thanks to these. In your like adolescent years, there's a whole bunch of other vaccinations as well as just setting good habits for yourself. When you get to your middle ages, there's a little bit more you can do as far as like screening, like colonoscopies, all of those, making sure you stay healthy to prevent all of those. And as you get older, this is where we start talking about what can you do to make sure that you maintain your, um, how do I put this, like how you want to live, um, what you view as a life, how you want to continue living versus what you would consider just being alive. Um, I know I said the same word a lot of times, but it's kind of the context of what does being alive mean to that person? That's where this discussion comes in. So that's definitely agreed where it's like the upstream conversations, the upstream decisions that are made that affect downstream care and quality of life. So my question for you now is in medicine, we use the term goals of care, goals of care discussion. What does that mean in the context of physicians versus patients? Yes. Um, so that's a, Great question. And I think your point too about preventative medicine at the end of life, what does that look like? It sounds like an oxymoron, right? But it is conversations. It is having the conversations that will allow you to live your life until the end that's aligned with your values. What does that mean practically? Okay. If it means I never want to be intubated and die in the hospital, I need to have upstream preventative end of life conversations that say what I want down the line. So to to physicians, that might look like goals of care. That might look like conversations about, all right, we're caring for this patient right now, given where she's at and say she's approaching end of life. What are our goals for her care plan? Um, And that might look like, um, getting a DNR, do not resuscitate what's code status, a discharge plan, goals of care. Um, and then in a broader sense to, to some physicians, especially those trained in the end of life, goals of care are, is our care plan aligned with your goals? Is it going to get you home? Oh, you want to take a vacation with your family before you get too sick to do so? 
let's come up with a pain plan regimen that allows you to do that. I think it differs in some ways for patients because goals of care, it extends beyond the care plan in the hospital to discharge, to follow up. It's their whole life. Goals of care for a patient is how do I want to live out the rest of my time on this earth? Mm -hmm. And that's why I think the gravity of those conversations is so significant where it might be kind of a discharge plan for a doc and it's the plan for the rest of my life for a patient. Exactly. And I think that's incredibly important. Something that we also try to stress on this podcast um, is that preventive medicine isn't just about kind of being healthy, but having that health or having that um, kind of the bodily situation, I guess you could call it as a general term for you to do what you want to do in your life, for how you want to act, for the things you want to see, the things, the places you want to go, the people you want to interact with. That is what we use as our definition of preventive medicine. So it's not like you're chasing health for a goal of health, but it's for what you want to do with that health. Um, and go ahead. No, that's great. It's the for sake of which, like, why, why? What, exactly. For the sake of what? For the sake of living of life, right? Yeah. And one of the things that goes along with that as well is the advanced directive. Mm -hmm. And um, real quick, can you explain what an advanced directive is? Because a lot of people listening might not know. Sure. Uh, I also encourage us all to fill out an advanced directive. <laughs> um, so an advanced directive is simply a document that lays out um, maybe your goals of care or what you want the end of life to look like, what kind of care you want, what you don't want. You could write it on a cocktail napkin and sign it. And uh, that's helpful to your doc if they've got it when you get admitted to the hospital. So it might say, um, I don't want to be resuscitated should my heart stop. I, but I do, I'm open to a feeding tube um, or I don't want artificial hydration and nutrition. You're kind of laying out uh, what you do and do not want when it comes to your medical care. And oftentimes these can get scanned into the EMR if they're not on a cocktail napkin. And um, hospital systems in their EMR can have it to where they're easily accessible. And then we know what that patient wants and doesn't want is so helpful. And instead of your medical team, if you become incapacitated, guessing about what you want or asking your daughter or your spouse what you want instead of asking you. So the advanced directive is a plan. Should you become unable to make your own medical decisions that are formally documented? So most states um, have these uh, templates that you can fill out and then kind of give it to folks, give it to your PCP and get it documented wherever you can. One of the things that you talk about in your book, Death and Dying, though, is that even if people have their advanced directives, um, say it was written on a cocktail napkin, handed it to a doctor in an outpatient setting, a lot of times people show up to the emergency department, whether it's due to family, just thinking something's not right or whatever the situation may be. And those advanced directives are nowhere to be found, mm -hmm. um, whether it's due to fragmented electronic health records, because one hospital uses one system, your primary might use a whole separate system from what the hospital uses. And that's, it just kind of ends up fragmented and things happen that you might not want. So is there a way to circumvent that or just kind of something we need to try to fix in the system? You know, this is why some docs make jokes about tattooing on their chest, do not resuscitate, right? Like, <laughs> how do I make it to where people know what my wishes are? And your wishes might also be that you want everything done and you want to be resuscitated. And that's perfectly fine if you've thought about it and that's what you want to do. So don't get me started on fragmented EHR systems. <laughs> I cannot. I get so frustrated with that. We should be able to pull up our documents wherever yep. we need to. So circumventing it, you know, you can go out of your way to make sure that your PCP has it on file and any hospital in your area has it on file. Um, it's different if an ambulance comes to your house, you need to fill out a, a, a separate form, an orange form that says DNR and then mm -hmm. have it displayed in your house. I would say that um, filling out an advanced directive, in addition to having these somewhat uncomfortable conversations with the people you love, that's the way to do it, that it is clear that your family knows. Because not only do you want to have directions for a physician who might be making decisions for you, you don't want to put your loved ones or your friends in a position where they're guessing or 
you know, your sister says this and your brother says that. And then you got to navigate that. You want to make it as easy as possible for the people you love uh, to know exactly what you want, which involves both the documentation we talked about and those hard conversations. Now, I can tell you anecdotally, uh, working in the ICU, there are families who have had that discussion, and it's very apparent um, when someone's loved one is dying, the family comes in, we have that family meeting, and we kind of give them the medical update of what's going on. We ask, how do you want to proceed? Obviously, in that appropriate discussion, and they have talked about, like, they wouldn't want to live like this. Mm. Let's go forward from there. Um, Then there's the other families who are in a complete, like, just silence because they don't know how to process what's going on. And then what ends up happening is the patient just like continues to be in that situation, which is obviously not necessarily the best for them. And it's it's night and day when who has had that conversation. So I would encourage everyone listening to this to have that conversation. It's uncomfortable. It's difficult, but it's definitely um, something beneficial. And I want to ask you, why is it beneficial? And why is it so harmful to have patients who do not have, have not had these discussions? Like what is the harm being done here? Mm-hmm. Yes. First of all, thank you for sharing that real life kind of clinical experience that how this manifests in the in the clinical world, especially the ICU where family meetings are happening all the time because those kinds of critical moments of what to do next um, become very apparent. So the consequences of this are significant. We see this so much now with COVID that if the conversation didn't happen and a patient ends up intubated in the COVID ICU and they never wanted to be intubated in the hospital, they wanted to die at home if that was the time was coming. And with COVID, what we're seeing is not only might someone be dying on a ventilator in the ICU, but their family might get to say goodbye to them, but their last breaths, they're alone. We have to extubate people um, without family around because of the risk of spreading COVID. There are people who their greatest fear on this planet is dying alone in a hospital or just surrounded by strangers. And that's what's happening. And in part, that's what's happening because they didn't make it clear to their family that they would never wanted to have died that way. And so the medical system, once those wheels start turning, in the hospital. Okay, now you need high flow oxygen. Now you need BiPAP. Now you need it to be- It moves fast. It moves so fast. We move very fast. And suddenly you're intubated with a tube down your throat and you never wanted it. And so you have to be diligent. You and your family have to be diligent and say, no, we talked about this. This isn't the next step we want to take. We talked about it. Let's stop. Let's stop the wheels from turning. But if the conversation never happened, you will get sucked up in those wheels and you're going to end up in a place you never imagined. And the other thing is if someone ends up intubated, it's not like you're awake being able to say, I don't want this tube. Once you get intubated, you're probably going to be sedated. So you will you'll likely never wake up. If you make it to that point where you recover, you'll wake up and maybe you can make that decision for later on. But unfortunately, what I've seen a lot of times is that patients just don't wake up and they're not able to have a say in the conversation. If they haven't had that conversation, their families are just kind of languishing out there. Um, They don't know what to do. They're hoping for a miracle, but miracles are called that for a reason. And we have patients that just sit in the ICU for a while, kind of slowly dying. And it's just, it's the worst thing to see. Um, it's, it's a difficult situation to be in, but it's something that families definitely talk about for that reason, because once things happen, they happen very quickly. Yes. Can we talk about really quickly what you just alluded to with a miracle? Yeah, go for it. So I think too often the miracle becomes a very narrow miracle, um, that, grandma's going to recover or, you know, they're, they're suddenly um, going to be okay and wake up in the ICU and against all odds. And, and that does happen sometimes. It really does against all of our predictions. But sometimes I wonder if we should reframe what the miracle is. And maybe a miracle is dying at home, surrounded by the people you love, with your dog in the bed with you. Um, and having a really beautiful space where people get to say goodbye and be present. Maybe that's the miracle sometimes. Um, and that sometimes we need to reframe what the miracle is and that the miracle shouldn't always be equated with miraculous cure against all odds. 
I do also want to say that um, in the hospital, we can't allow that to happen, um, especially with COVID patients where we have so many people coming in to say goodbye. Obviously, when the time comes, families always say, can we bring X, like X, Y, Z, all these family members, can people fly in to come say goodbye? And unfortunately in hospitals, especially with COVID, the answer is no. Mm-hmm. Because there's hospital policies, it's a danger to have so many other people in there, especially in the ICU when there's so much hustle and bustle going on. And it's 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 heartbreaking as physicians to not be able to like have people say goodbye to their family members. Yeah. Um, and you talk about in your book how a lot of people go went from dying at home to dying in hospitals. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about that for a second? Sure. So historically, you know, before gosh, the advent of a lot of what seemed to be miraculous drugs uh, like penicillin. Um, The hospital, and before, you know, aseptic surgery and sterile practices, you did not do well if you went to the hospital, right? You, the hospital used to be a place for people to die. We didn't have great interventions. And so people weren't clamoring to go to the hospital to get cured. Um, And so when it came to dying and the end of life, people were at home. Uh, People weren't going to the hospital. They they were tended to by their family. Um, Sometimes it was the church that was part of those end of life rituals. As the hospital transitioned to a place where we do a lot of curing and fixing, or at least patchworks to get you stable enough to get discharged, Mm -hmm. um, the perception becomes that the hospital is the place for me to go to get fixed. And so ironically, dying was not what was happening um, in the hospital, but it was, it was, it became part of medicine. It became medicalized. And so it was, we can stave off death as long as possible. So instead of dying at home, you might go to the hospital to get cured. And so then dying is out of the hands of the family into the hospital, but the hospital ironically is not the place for dying like you just described. Your family's not going to come in. We're not going to have a ritual around it. We're going to kind of not let people know it's happening in that room. Get the body out as soon as possible. And so death becomes part of medicine as we try to stave it off. But it becomes invisible in the hospital because you're not supposed to, quote unquote, die there. The hospital is the place to get fixed, not to die. So you're not going to have a beautiful death. The the miracle of a beautiful death is not going to happen in the hospital because hospitals are not set up for a beautiful ritual of death at the end of life. You need to either be in a hospice or at home. It's not going to happen in the hospital. So it's ironically um, the place to to fix and stave off death and a place to hide that death is happening all at once. We'll be right back. We want to take a quick break to remind you that this podcast is not intended for medical advice and is for educational and informational purposes only. We also want to remind you of our Instagram page at PreventPod, where we share various content relating to each episode that you can share with your friends if you enjoy our episode. And lastly, don't forget to sign up for our mailing list so you know right away when an episode goes up at www.thepreventivemedicinepodcast.com. And with that, let's get back into this episode. All right. Um, We have talked a lot about what's going on at the end of life and with dying patients. And I want to ask you the question. We've kind of already discussed a little bit of this, but what does it mean to have excellent care for a dying patient? Or is it just excellent care to identify that someone is actually dying? Mm -hmm. Um, So I want to say yes and yes. So, you know, recognizing and acknowledging that someone is approaching the end of life, as simple as that sounds, uh, can be tricky. One, because prognostication is hard to what's the prognosis of this patient. And you don't want to give people like finite timeline. Um, and two, because at least in hospital culture where remember death is kind of invisible, we don't really want to acknowledge it or talk about it. And it's like, well, you know, well, neurology is following this patient. So I hope neurology is talking about it or cardiology is talking about it. Well, I hope the primary team is talking about it because it's a hard conversation. 
And so what we realize is everyone is assuming someone else is having this hard conversation and then no one is. And then you might have a family where, you know, particularly with cancer, when there's been remission and then they're sick again and then... The family, even though it's very obvious that their loved one is not doing well, they might expect that they're going to rally back. And it requires a doctor or someone on the healthcare team to have the hard conversation. But when the healthcare team is assuming everyone else is having it, then no one else is having it. And nobody has the conversation. So, yes, excellent care requires even acknowledging that someone is dying. That's like baseline. Beyond that, when that finally gets acknowledged and people are saying, I'm worried, I'm worried that you're not going to get better. I'm worried that you're not going to walk out of the hospital. Then excellent care starts to look like, what do you wish for? What do you want this to look like? What are your goals? Like we talked about earlier. And I want to say that even though for me, if I was approaching the end of life, I probably would say, please stop intervening. I want, you know, no more medical stuff. I want to go home and be with people I love. That would look like excellent care for me. For others, it's, I want to keep trying and keep fighting. I want to say that even though I wouldn't go that route, if that is aligned with someone's values, they should be able to do that. And the only time I find that unacceptable, more interventions, more interventions, is if that's a result of a conversation never happening. If the wheels keep turning because no one's talking about it, that's a problem. If the wheels keep turning because the patient and their family firmly believe that's what they want, I find that morally acceptable. So excellent care is contingent on what the patient and their family want and if that makes sense to the care team. Definitely agreed with that. Um, but unfortunately, the situation comes a lot of times, like we were talking about, when patients get sick enough, um, either they're not able to make their own decisions, they're intubated, sedated, and we have to start talking to families. And in the case that there's no advanced directive form filled out or those discussions have not been had, physicians have to talk to families who, for some reason, in my experience at least, I'm not saying this is a, like a general all experience, but every family seems to believe that their person can get better. So mm-hmm. as physicians, how do we talk to families and help them understand what the situation is? And can this also somewhat reflect prevention? Yes. <laughs> so that's such a good question. And I work really closely with our palliative care team and we talk about this a lot. And, you know, palliative care and, and maybe for those of you who are not in palliative care, the best thing to do is to con- is to consult palliative. They Which are, we started doing a lot. <laughs> I'm sure you did in the ICU during these times. I'm sure you did. And the palliative teams are so busy these days. Oh, yeah. The palliative teams, I mean, they're board certified in palliative medicine. They're specialty, their training is in these conversations. I firmly believe all physicians and nurse practitioners and PAs should be trained in these conversations, not just palliative care. Um, But I think having frank conversations with the family and saying, I am worried. I love that phrase, I'm worried, because it communicates that you care, but it also communicates your real concern that things are heading the wrong way. I'm worried that this is causing more suffering for your mom. Can you tell me what your mom would want in this situation? Because I'm worried it's going in a direction that's causing her more pain. Sometimes that can open the door, sometimes. Um, The family has to feel like they can trust you and that you care about the person who's dying. They have to believe that. If they think you're against them and you don't care, they're gonna dig their heels in. Why do you wanna give up on her? Keep going, keep going. So there's so much interpersonal dynamic that's going on in this situation. Um, And how does that have to do with preventive? I think it prevents more suffering. I think it helps provide healing at the end of life 
even if someone's dying, I believe that people can die and experience healing at the same time. We've mentioned palliative care and hospice a couple of times. And as you were saying, sometimes when those words come up, families think, oh, you're giving up on them? Why are you giving up on them? So can you kind of talk about, I know you already mentioned a little bit about what palliative care is. Can you mention what hospice is? Sure. Such an important distinction. So you and I have been talking about like acutely dying people in the hospital. So I want to back up a little bit. If I'm not acutely dying, but I might have a new chronic illness diagnosis or terminal maybe, but I'm, I'm fine. I'm feeling pretty okay. Palliative care can be initiated early on in the illness trajectory. In my mind, palliative medicine and preventative medicine are like really great teammates. Um, palliative medicine says that you can get chemotherapy, you can get dialysis, and we're here to help you with your symptoms, help you to clarify your goals of care, let's fill out an advanced directive, let's manage your nausea and your pain, let's support you. That's palliative care. Hospice care is similar to palliative in that it's addressing symptoms, addressing goals of care, having hard conversations, but it's reserved for patients who have six months or fewer to live. These are patients closer to the end of life. Um, All of their bills start getting covered by Medicare at that point through the Medicare hospice benefit. And they have to stop curative disease-directed treatment. If you're on hospice care, for the most part, there are some exceptions in the country, you stop your chemotherapy. You stop, for the most part, renal dialysis unless it's palliative. Um, And so it's really preparing for that end of life, acute end of life, dying, and then bereavement. Whereas palliative medicine is initiated more upstream as kind of, uh, in some ways, preventative care. Okay. Um, And then when we talk about hospice as well, um, we're not giving up on care, right? Yes. What are we, so so patients think that that was more of a question that, that was poorly phrased. So patients think that when you're doing hospice, you're just withdrawing everything and letting someone die. But you, what we like to say in the hospital, at least is if someone is going towards hospice care, then we are providing them maximal, doing everything that we can to make sure that they're comfortable. Yes. Would you say that that's accurate? Yes. So there's different terminology that different places use. Like they might call it comfort care, supportive care. Uh, so... Yes, um, hospice often gets equated with now you're going to pull the plug or you're going to let me die. The reason why is because hospice care gets initiated so late in the game that a lot of times you'll be like, well, my aunt started hospice and she died the next day. And we have so many stories of that that I think the lay population believes that hospice means I'm going to die in a day or two. That's only because we initiate it so late. Hospice is full supportive care. It is like some of the best care you could imagine. It's the way like medicine should be, right? Like caring for you as a whole person. There's a chaplain on the team. There's a social worker. There's a nurse. There's a doc. Like this wraparound care that makes dying so much better for you and your family. But that's if it's initiated early enough to get all those services. But we avoid those conversations so much that it just happens at the very end of life and no one gets to enjoy the services and they die in a day or two. Exactly. And I want to bring up one of the other things that you mentioned while you were talking about hospice, which is um, unfortunately the financial costs. Um, And uh, I've read a couple of books surrounding this, including... um, uh, what was it called? Being Mortal mm-hmm. uh, by Otogo Ande. And he talks a lot about, about the financial costs as well associated with death. And unfortunately, um, end of life care, like in the hospital, not necessarily end of life care, but like those very advanced treatments when someone is near the edge of dying are very expensive. Mm-hmm. And as much as we like to think life is invaluable, there is in realistically a hospital bill associated with a lot of those things. Yeah. Um, and when we make those, when we do those like interventions to try to keep someone alive, they end up being very costly. Mm -hmm. And that can also be some 
um, I don't want to say burden, but it can add to the languish of a dying loved member or a, a loved one as well. Yeah. So I just, just want to add that on there as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, much of our interventions at the end of life are expensive. It's interesting because when you look at the data, the, the idea that all of our healthcare costs are going to patients at the end of life, like there's sometimes people will say like 50% of Medicare costs are associated with end of life. When you look at the data, it, it's actually, it doesn't bear out that way. Um, it's actually less money for those patients, um, less money than we think. It's still expensive, but less money mm. than we think. Um, so yes, there's costs associated with that. I think the unfortunate thing is when we start talking in dollars and cents about the benefit of hospice or palliative medicine. Uh, so oftentimes hospitals will say, okay, palliative medicine team, we'll support you, create your department if you can show us that you save us money. Palliative medicine often does save people money because you get discharged a little sooner and get your support services. You do choose less invasive interventions at the end of life, which, as you mentioned, saves money. But I think it's so unfortunate that palliative medicine has to use that language Agreed. to show its value when its value to me is so much beyond dollars and cents. Definitely agree. I think it's just one of those topics that I want to bring up because it's one of those harsh truth reality things that there is still a financial cost associated with things. And it's something that physicians don't really think about or learn about. It's something that families don't think about because all they're thinking about is their loved one. Um, so I just I just had to bring that up. <laughs> yes, it is so true. And when you get a huge hospital bill while you're grieving, God, you know, it's just I could. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it does. It costs money. <laughs> And then that's exactly why I wanted to bring it up. But going on from there, so we've talked a lot about kind of what we can do, what we should be doing, how we can practice um, risk reduction, preventive medicine at the end of life. But the people who will be doing this are physicians. And you write a lot about introducing humanities within medicine. And you might have mentioned it in your book, but I haven't read that part yet. So I'm sorry about that. Um, it's sorely needed. How can we practically implement this when there's already so many demands on healthcare providers, especially during pandemics such as this? Yes. Great question. So I do answer this in the last chapter, uh, chapter six. Oh, no wonder. <laughs> um, so, you know, I do think a lot of the interventions happen at, during training. I think that's the place where we need to incorporate um, the humanities, like reflection and reflecting on our own vulnerability. So when I can get my medical students to reflect on their own vulnerability, the ways that they suffer, I think it connects them to their future patients. Um, it's not an algorithm of how to have empathy. It's, can you imagine what it might be like to suffer? Can you tap into your own experiences of loneliness or pain? And then it compels you to care for another human. I think that getting in touch with our vulnerability is where compassion starts and then empathy. So I think we need more reflection, conversation, engagement with the humanities, patient stories, having patients stand up in front of a med medical school class and talk about their lived experience of illness. That I think we need more of, and there's room for it, I believe, in the curriculum. The kind of other side of the coin and the other part of your question, how do we do this for practicing clinicians during this impossible time is such a hard thing, but I think it's also incredibly simple. Hmm. It really is connecting with your colleagues and acknowledging when things are hard or overwhelming or sad or hilarious or beautiful. We are so bad at being vulnerable and we're so bad at being vulnerable in medicine. There are efforts. So some of your listeners might be familiar with something called Schwartz Rounds. We've got this at our hospital here where instead of talking about like the medical management of patients, um, you know, we'll get like a clinician, a nurse, someone in chaplain services, maybe someone in like environmental services talking about what it's like to take care of patients or what COVID has been like for them. And then the point is to get the people in the room, the audience, to share their own stories of how hard it is or amazing it is or what it might be. Um, sometimes the topic is like a patient I'll never forget and talking about that. So it's about normalizing vulnerability and connection. 
it doesn't have to be this elaborate, like, let's have a poetry session. This is what medical humanities is. It's just talking and being brave enough, having the courage to just say, this is hard. I don't even want to do it anymore. Even that, I think helps you get connected to your colleagues to have real conversations. It sounds like that's where a lot of our intensivists are at the uh, hospital I'm at where they've, so the way our hospital is set up is a lot of them also take care of other patients on the floor. So they end up having like these ridiculous lists of like a hundred patients that they have to see. And it just, um, I feel like they don't have time for anything else other than to think about those patients and everything that's going on because I don't know. I, I honestly don't know how they do it, um, but I feel like there wouldn't be even enough time to kind of think about that vulnerability because you're just on autopilot. You're just trying to take care of these patients and remember everything and make sure everything gets done correctly. That's such a good point. And I really do think for anybody who cares, there is going to be residual, I will say, trauma among those practitioners. And I think we are called to care for them if and when this is over. I can't imagine it not affecting them in a significant and lasting way. And I think there's a moral imperative to draw around those nurses and docs and respiratory techs and OTs and PTs and CNAs and take care of them after this. Definitely. Um, you mentioned how vulnerability um, kind of will help people. Um, take care of others. Um, that's kind of what we've been talking about. Why do you think that vulnerability is so important when it comes to taking care of patients? Oh, I think that vulnerability is crucial because it's always there no matter what. So you can build up your walls, you can pretend it's not there and it's there. So I think getting in touch with our own vulnerability allows us to respond more appropriately, authentically, meaningfully with the vulnerability of our patients in front of us. If you want to pretend it's not there and then kind of like have factory line encounters over and over with patients where it's just transactional, what do you need? How can I help you? I think that leads to burnout. I think the prevention of burnout is connecting mm. with patients and seeing their vulnerability and responding to them as a human. That human connection is what I believe sustains people in medicine who were called to medicine because they want to help people. So use all your energy pretending the vulnerability is not there, but I think it's going to burn you out rather than saying it's here. How can I get in touch with my own so I can respond better to the people around me? I 100% agree with that. And um, I feel like what happens in hospitals a lot of time is that as fresh trainees and whatnot, we try to, that's kind of like the quote unquote ideal of medicine. We're connecting with them on a human basis. We are all humans one-to-one, but as you go on, and even in some hospitals, that ends up taking a little bit more time when you're interacting with that patient. And some hospitals that looks like, oh, you're not efficient. You're not taking these patients in a quick and timely manner. How are you gonna get and take care of like 30 patients and become an attending? So it starts becoming looked down upon that you're taking so long and trying to make these connections when sometimes, let's say you need a translator and it takes a while to make that connection because of a language barrier. Sometimes the patient just might be a little bit of hard of hearing, so it takes a little bit longer even then. So I feel like the humanity and the vulnerability kind of gets baked out of trainees as they go on in their years. I'm only an intern, so I'm talking about this. I'm fresh right now, but I feel like it gets baked out of doctors the longer and longer you go. So that's just something I also want to bring up. Yeah. Thanks for bringing up the really hard stuff. So yes, that is <laughs> true. And it is because our healthcare system is so broken. We should not be a fee-for-service model. You should not be incentivized to order more tests and do more things in order to get paid. It should not be about RVUs and generating revenue based on number of patients seen. It is so backwards, right? You should be uh, being rewarded for meaningful encounters where people actually receive some kind of healing. I can say that all I want. I don't know how to fix the healthcare system. It's so badly broken. It needs an entire rethink. We need to get rid of private insurance companies and all these things that I believe. But you're right. Our systems make it nearly impossible to do the work that is most meaningful to practitioners. And I hope that we are educating maybe a generation of medical students and healthcare professionals who are going to demand something different and something more. I hope so. 
when we put the onus on an individual practitioner to be well, take care of herself and, um, you know, engage in wellness and connect with your patients without changing the systems that are perpetuating burnout, we're totally missing the mark. Agreed. We've talked about a lot of very important, very heavy hitting, very challenging things in this episode. And I I love bringing up those questions. Um, I think everything like that needs to be discussed. But let's say someone just like fell asleep during this episode. If there's one thing that you would want the listener to take away from this episode regarding kind of death and dying, preventive medicine during that, what would you want them to take away? I would want them to take away that I hope they have the courage to have hard conversations with patients and their families when they need it most. I know it's a lot to ask, but practitioners, their words are incredibly meaningful in the clinical context. And even if other people are saying to someone like, you know, your husband doesn't look good and maybe we should start talking about end of life. I think patients and families hear it loudest and clearest from their doctors. And I would encourage doctors to have the courage to have those conversations and to be open to the idea that they're not as scary as they think, and they could actually be deeply meaningful conversations. And what about for the flip side for patients? What would you want them to get away from this? We're we're all patients at some point. I I might be a physician like tomorrow, but could be a patient the next day. Yes. So for patients, um, 100% of us are going to die. It's the reality. (laughs) So have the conversations with your family. It's such a loving act to let your family know what you want the end of your life to look like. So there's no guesswork and they know that they've got the peace that they made the decisions that were aligned with what you wanted prevention all in one conversation um thank you so much for this i think it's a very undervalued but uh greatly underappreciated um i guess those are the same things but we need we need more of this that's that's a summary that's right okay we need a lot more of this we need the last (laughs) the last question we ask every guest on this is if you are in a coffee shop and someone recognizes you hey you're the author of uh death and dying right um what do you tell them in two minutes if they ask you how do i get healthy Oh, gosh. So how do I get healthy? I really think it's through uh, connection with others. Uh, Honesty, vulnerability, hard conversations, fun conversations, and connecting with the people you love intentionally. So connection and relationship is what I think leads to a healthy life. Perfect. All right. Well, I really enjoyed having you on the show. I hope our listeners did as well. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to help us spread the message of prevention, first off, rate and review this podcast. Second off, you can find our content on our social media platforms at PreventPod. That's P-R-E-V-E-N-T-P-O-D. Thank you for listening and we'll see you on the next one.